0: You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Hey everyone, today's guest is a business leader, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and a self described strategy zealot who many would call one of the founding fathers of social finance in Canada. Bill, welcome to the podcast and thank you for being my inaugural guest. well, thanks for having me. And hopefully,
1: it won't be one and done in terms of that.
0: <laughs> no, it would be great to have you back on. Great. So, Bill, for the people listening who may not know who you are, can you give us a quick intro? Who are you, and what do you do?
1: Uh, so I'm I'm uh, chairman. As we were joking before, I finally got promoted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, founder of Social Capital Partners. It's a uh, nonprofit that historically has been trying to find new sustainable ways to uh, provide employment for people who face employment barriers: single moms, new immigrants, at-risk youth but in new and creative models. And so we've done everything from lend money to business owners, uh, but conditional on them implementing a community hiring program. So we provide financing, but link it to a social mission and then tie our interest rates to that social mission. So with each community hire, their interest rate goes down and with, uh, um, if they let any of the community hires go, we raise their interest rates. we've always kind of linked, you know, a, um, some thinking about how do you find new sustainable ways to solve structural social challenges, often using social finance as a tool, uh, to do that. And that's, that's a very short description of what has been a very long journey.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm amazed you're able to tell it that succinctly. Um, so, you know, it was interesting as I've, I've entered this space, you know, coming from the traditional, traditional for-profit capital markets. The lexicon is is really challenging, and, and I think it's a reflection of the the infancy of the industry still. That there are not sort of concrete, well-defined, and uh, delineated terms for things. So even, you know, what is this entire space where purpose and profit meet? I mean, I don't have a a singular term. So I was interested that you referred to it as social finance versus social capital impact investing. So these are things that are very blurry. Do you have a, is is that, am I alone on that?
1: <laughs> no, I think you're sadly uh, in, in a majority on that. It, it drives me crazy because I hate, uh, actually spending, you know, three quarters of a conversation on definitions. Um, but to your point often people use terms and they actually mean something different so i think it's just important whenever there is a conversation that okay this is what i mean by that and and the conversation hopefully in in sort of you know the evolution of that conversation those terms become more clear just by the way you know the conversation uses those terms and describes them but but I think you you put it together at the start of that by saying, it's really about how do you combine profit and purpose. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and whether you use the term social finance, you use the term impact investment, whether you use the term social enterprise, you're describing different facets of putting profit and purpose together. And 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 we historically have segregated those things, both just in the way we operate. You work in the for-profit world or the non-profit world, as if they're just... You know, they're completely two separate entities and the way we regulate it, you know, for organizations like ours where we run into headaches from combining profit and purpose because our our regulators assume you don't combine these two. So ironically, there's lots of us who think, no, this is where the solution, the, the, the kind of solutions we have to find are at the intersection of, you know, non-profits and for-profits and we have to find these new models but but we don't have either the language or a regulatory framework to deal with it yet and so lots of challenges in that
0: yeah i mean it's it's i've done a bit of philosophy and, and one of the big things that you're doing when you're assessing an argument right is let's define our terms what do we mean when we say this and so it is that's that's a challenge just regardless and and then in this industry it's particularly challenging uh, given the, the lots of terms that get floated out there. Do you have a big, um, is there sort of one big one that's a pet peeve for you? Hey, people keep saying this and they mix these things up or there's some, it's just, or is it just a big soup of, of terms and it all blends?
1: <laughs> well, my pet peeve, which I'll try and avoid talking about, particularly on a podcast that will, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it be accessed by lots of people is CRA. Right. Uh, you know, our Canadian Revenue Agency, who's the regulator, who you know makes it difficult for organizations to do this kind of work because the regulatory framework doesn't uh, you know contemplate and is really struggling <laughs> definitionally with what this is. So, mm-hmm. so that's where in an academic conversation about you think this is what the term means, I think that's what the term means. I, I don't. Really care about that. I just like to say let's just be clear and let's not argue over who's right or who's wrong But there's more at stake when there's a regulator and says you can't do this mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, When it's a good thing to do and people acknowledge that's where my pet peeve lies I'm I'm usually trying to be smarter about uh, Not going down this rat hole since I you know my blood pressure boils, <laughs> the steam comes up my ears and, All right I say things that I might regret, uh, but, but right. that's my pet peeve.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I won't. I won't ruin your entire day by making you <laughs> focus on this right now. Um, do you? And I was going to say this question for later, but it feels um, relevant right now. Do you, because you mentioned a couple of times. I mean, this we're still living in a world where most people don't sort of view purpose and profit as being something. They view those as mutually exclusive, and. I'm hopeful that we're going to get to a day, a world one day where, like my daughter, for instance, views the world where, like, oh, it was just our, our barbaric that at one point the world viewed a business's sole priority as maximizing shareholder value at like the exclusion of everything else. Um, do you think that's a possible and and what type of time frame would you put on that?
1: Yeah, I think that day is very possible. I mean, I mean, I think that's uh, you know any of us in this field aren't very objective you <laughs> <laughs> right. have to take it with a grain of salt but absolutely i believe it's possible and i think it'll happen uh, relatively soon because i think it's I, I mean this is this is where i'm not objective i think it's sure. obvious <laughs> you know it's, it's a duh that we have to do this so um uh, you know those you know so when, when something is obvious, you, you are convinced that it, it will happen. Uh, um, we just need to find more sustainable models for solving some of our structural social challenges. And and we've seen, you know, the havoc that's wrecked if you have, you know, unbridled capitalism where all it's, you know, we see what inequality is and we see. And, and we also recognize that this notion of governments write checks and we solve social problems doesn't work either. So, so we need to find these models, and if I look just at the last 15 years, which is the time I've been sort of in this field, you know, yes, I'm frustrated at the pace. I wish it was happening much faster, but boy, it's a lot different world in 2018 than it was in 2001 when I talk about this in terms of the different kinds of institutions that are interested in, in uh, this and the number of people and... You know, I'm I'm I have great hope, uh, you know, with this millennial generation because they actually want to combine these things. You know, an organization like ours, we get swamped by you know such fantastic, you know, applications. Anytime we have a job opening of you know people who, in my day, you know, coming out of an MBA school or whatever, you never would have gone to a nonprofit. It was like Uh, You separated we separated career and community as if they were two Separate things and you did career in the week and you did community in the weekend as if that so I think it's it's blending together in so many ways and you know millennial you know There aren't enough jobs in this purpose-built hybrid space right now to satisfy the demand of Millennials that want to work in it So those Millennials are going to be working in conventional companies And holding those conventional companies accountable to, hey, I don't want to work in a place that, you know, isn't aligned with my values or where the sole, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of motivation is to try and create as great profits for shareholders as possible. So I think there are a whole bunch of uh, macro factors that are going to drive this world to that place in a relatively short period
0: of time. I mean, I, again, I'm not objective, but I completely agree with that. I feel like the rate, the, the pace of the change is, is happening faster and faster. Um, and so what happened, you know, the changes we've seen over the past 18 years and moving towards perfect purpose and profit coming together is it, it will only be a more magnified over the next 18 years. Do you, what, so, cause I feel as well that this just seems so self-evident, so obvious as soon as it clicks, but there's clearly, I mean, there's, A variety of reasons why more organizations have moved more towards that but i think there's some percentage that still don't see that like do you how can somebody i guess it's so self-evident how are there so many people that still don't see it
1: (laughs) well i think there is that milton friedman school of you know the job of a corporation is to make as much money for shareholders and the shareholders themselves can then decide on you know, how to spend that money philanthropically. The corporation shouldn't make that decision on behalf of shareholders is sort of this this notion of and you can construct, I think, an academically solid argument as to why that is the case. And and um, uh, you know again for me it misses the forest for the trees, we are all here with a collective responsibility to make this uh, world as you know, as good as we can. You know, our our collective job should be to leave the world a better place than we found it when we arrived here. And 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 I think that collective job applies to all individuals and all institutions. And if you uh, think that way, you can't help but come to this conclusion. And and I think corporations are very much a part of. You know those critical institutions in this world that that should be you know mandated to uh, you know think more broadly than uh, you know just as you and I should answer existentially why we think we're here right. <laughs> I think corporations should too I think governments should I think nonprofits should I think I think any any entity uh, that should be part of the makeup of that entity. but that's uh, that's still a difficult pill to swallow, I think, for you know people who want to bifurcate the world and say, no, individual specialty and this individual specialty of a corporation is uh, make as much money for the shareholders as possible, and those shareholders can then decide whether they want to use that money philanthropically or not. It shouldn't be the corporation's decision to do that. And that argument has no... Uh, you know, either existential appeal to me <laughs> you know arguably moral appeal and and uh but but more importantly sort of human appeal you know sort of in in terms of you know why we're all here
0: yeah that's um I, anyway yeah. you don't
1: want this to be a philosophy class so let's uh no
0: it's a it, 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 off i enjoy that stuff but um so but let, let's reverse course a little bit here can you talk a little bit about um where did you get started? I mean, I know a bunch of background, but you can go right back to where were you born, raised, how did that, I'm interested in, I'm very curious about how people and you started as sort of a pure, you know, Harvard MBA entrepreneur, business leader. What, talk about that journey, but then also the, at what point does think that that's like a off for you that says, Oh wait, there's purpose and profit are not mutually exclusive. And you're well ahead of the game way before a lot of other people started to make that connection.
1: Yeah. Um, but I get a lot of credit for what I do. And as I point out, uh, I didn't do this till um, I didn't have to worry <laughs> about paying a mortgage or uh, getting kids through education. Or, you, you know, I am one of those lucky people in life who happens uh, to have been in the right place in the right time. And so, uh, you know, I don't have any uh, financial. Uh, concerns or worries whatsoever. I mean, how lucky is that? Um, And that I I think getting into that position and in my last iteration of my business career, I I would argue in my first iteration of my business career, and and we don't want to get too much into this story because we want to get to, you know, the whole social capital partners journey. But I, I think in my first sort of career iteration, I believe there was nobility in business. You could actually create a company that cared about all stakeholders, thought more broadly, you know, in terms of the sort of discussion we just had. And in my second iteration, <laughs> it was all about going public, thinking how we could hit a home run in the public markets. It was all about making as great a return for shareholders, one stakeholder as possible. And it was the craziness of sort of the dot-com world and a particular organization I was in was Emerging Telecom, which in the late nineties you could back up a truck and get, you know, lots of money financing go public, as long as you had the right paint by numbers formula that was established by the king of investment banks, etc. And you felt I was talking about that pet like I was sort of a marionette to 28-year-old investment bankers and red suspenders. Telling us what we should do, none of which made any sense to me in a, in a macro. That's a longer story, but but that um, that whole experience, both finding myself in in a position that, that uh, you know I had a real windfall financially, uh, and you know, so realizing, boy, the wheel of fortune spun well for me. she doesn't spin well for everybody. Um, and this notion that I want to do something very, very different, because this didn't resonate with me, this last iteration. And uh, um, so it was, you know, a combination of, of things that said, I've got to do something completely different. And, and, and so I knew I wanted to shift gears and try and say, how do I, I mean, you know, how do I think about making the world a better place much more explicitly? Uh, than, than I have, and that's when it dawned on me. Hey, why have we why have we divided this world into these separate, you know, sectors? That that here's what you know for profits do. Here's what nonprofits and charities do. Here's what the government does. As if there's no intersect. And it seemed obvious in 2001. Seems even more obvious in 2018. Again, just what we've talked about this this notion that governments write checks and we solve social problems. That didn't look very sustainable or or effective, and and there was also this notion of I don't want to park my business experience and learn a whole new field of philanthropy, but why can't we combine business and doing good? And and so really, the driving the initial driving force behind social capital partners is well, why don't we take a structural social challenge, which happened to be how do you find meaningful employment for people who face employment barriers like single moms, new immigrants, or you know. Opportunity youth, or, or, and and uh, you know, find new sustainable ways to try and solve that. Why why don't we create new models that prove you can put those things together as as ways of just you know helping be a catalyst for uh, you know these new kind of hybrid approaches to to you know both solving a structural social uh, challenges, but also (laughs) generating our you know, economic
0: returns, if you like. So a couple of questions. One, so lots of people, right, have a bad experience at work or they feel, Hey, this is something, some period of work, they have a bad taste in their mouth. And then don't start to think about, well, what can I do that will have an impact on the world? Like what, what's that thing? Um, and maybe it's an experience growing up or it's a travel experience. Like, is there, what makes you start to think beyond just, oh, I'm going to just try another career path that I'll find more enjoyable, but it's still within the traditional framework. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of it as kind of, this is maybe a little exaggerated, but unplugging from the matrix a little bit and like, oh, right. I don't have to follow this whole entire model. And there's a, there's another world out there. What, what makes you do that?
1: Well, I mean, getting back to upbringing, Yeah. I had uh, parents who were very community-minded okay. read into me, you know, you've got a responsibility when you've been given as much as we've been given. You so know, that's modeled exactly
0: right from, from, from childhood.
1: childhood. Of, you know, how I was brought up. I think the other thing though is, I think, yeah, you know, all of us probably somewhere in our career journey arrive at various turning points where something happens and that moment is there to rethink and and you might choose to take it or you might choose not to take it, but you have a moment, you lose your job. You, you have a big windfall. You have, you, you know, there, there's a point where you just get this chance to step back and say, should I be thinking differently about that? Uh, and what I'm doing, should, should I be thinking differently about my future? And I think, I, I think there's also it, it, it it relates to sort of that life journey, too, you know, when you, when you hit your 40s, which is what I hit, and you, you, are, you are sort of reflecting. So I think a lot of things came together for me at one point in time. Big windfall, beginning uh, to question some of the things that made me so interested in business, purely business per se, you know, my upbringing and, uh, and this, you know, sort of unique opportunity to, to step back and, and, you know, really because I'm in my forties, because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this is a chance to rethink my life, you know, you know, the next part of it. So all those things I think happened to come together and, and came together in a way that I, I got this great opportunity to, you know, re, you know, step back and, and recalibrate everything.
0: That's really interesting. Um, so let's, let's get into social capital partners. So you've, where were you immediately before you had started social capital partners? What were you doing just prior to that?
1: It's doing a company called Optel Communications Corp. Which it was Optel, okay. Accent, uh, uh, which, uh, went public, um, <laughs> Anyway, it's a long
0: story. We better not get into that. Okay.
1: We'll have another podcast on, sure. <laughs> on, uh, on its trajectory. And, uh, I would love to. <laughs> I know it's a good story. I, I probably need a uh, you know, beer and a, a couple of beer to tell that one. But,
0: All right. That's, <laughs> if you're willing to, I'm willing to listen.
1: But anyway, so, so that's where i would just been. Um, and what was good about it was... Well, it is too long a story, so I better not go down that hole. Cool. But 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 I I moved into a an agreement where I would be chair for a year, but only half time, and that gave me half time for a year to really think hard about what I was going to do next. And so I had a lot of time to kind of research some of the interesting things going on in sort of this hybrid space. Um, and so that was a that was you know. It, you know, what immediately preceded uh, social capital partners.
0: And so then that, that period ends now. And so now you're full-time unemployed, I guess, or yes. starting up a, <laughs> uh, a a business. What do you, what are, what are those first founding, like those first original steps for social capital partners?
1: Well, interestingly enough, um, uh, one of the things I, I did was, uh, uh, which doesn't come out in the story much. So it's, so, so it's nice to, come out the story, um, uh, I parked at in the offices of the Monitor Group, which was a strategy consulting company.
0: Roger Martins, yeah, or uh, belonged oh, to, he was there, wasn't he, at the time? Pardon me? Was Roger Martin? Yeah,
1: Roger Martin was there. Yeah. So, in, in my MBA class, I had uh, uh, both Roger and uh, one of the founders of Monitor. So, you know, and uh, so I had uh, currency there where i went to them (laughs) i want to do something completely different i want to create this model uh uh, i want to do some research on what the best things are out there and think about it in a canadian context will you give me an office and give me some resources for uh, for free because you should be (laughs) thinking about this too and and to their credit they said absolutely so i actually my first stop was uh you know, they, they set me up at monitor, um, you know, all, and, and, you know, provided a couple of, uh, really whip smart young, uh, uh, sort of consultants of theirs to start thinking about, uh, what's, what turned into social capital partners can do.
0: Wow. That's really, that's a, that's an interesting, uh, yeah, and then, genesis
1: and then helped, uh, uh well, until acquired by deloitte actually uh, pro bono all the way through uh our, which, which gave social capital partners you know way more resources than we had on our own in terms of having access to that and and interestingly enough, again, this is the trouble of interviewing me. I get way off topic
0: <laughs> it's okay
1: but but um you know what I could do in return for monitor is they said we come on our recruiting visits because uh, we can differentiate ourselves now on a recruitment visit because instead of, you know, saying to prospective people, you know, students coming out of their MBAs that they might be helping, I don't know, Tide create another half percent market share in the detergent industry, uh, they're going to be helping this social enterprise figure out how to gain more market share, employ more people, etc. And why don't you tell the story of how... Um, you know, we've helped you in a couple of these. So, you know, we could give back in that way because, of course, that was a huge attraction and differentiator for uh, the types of people they were trying to attract. And, and people were, at Monitor, were, were, you know, fighting almost to work on sort of our projects because it was so, so interesting. So that was a wonderful, you know, relationship, I think, for both of us.
0: Wow, that's really that's really cool. And even back then, you were finding that it was exciting for people to come. It was a differentiator. It allowed you to attract better talent because you're working yeah. on more meaningful work.
1: Yeah, and interesting that they wanted us on their recruiting visits. You know, that hmm. that was something they thought. Yeah, this is this generation that's coming up it seems to care about this stuff. So
0: wow, that's great. So let's walk then through because the way you've I've heard you describe it in the past is is social capital partners has sort of three distinct phases to its evolution. Um, it, walk through that because I think that's as we were talking about before the podcast. I think really interesting and I think sets a really good example of how this idea of you sort of t- test an idea, you know, learn from and those the, that testing and then pivot and you've done that in three distinct stages uh, over what. 15 years? Yeah, now 17, sadly. Yeah.
1: Um, So, our first phase was when we said, um, let's tackle this, you know, social issue of finding meaningful employment for people who face employment and we said, well, let's help start up businesses that do that as part of their DNA. So, let's be, for lack of a better uh, description, a social venture capital organization. And our first lens in terms of you know, the kinds of deals we will look to do was at least 50% of the employees had to come from a disadvantaged population. But then after that, we, we look, say, okay, um, do they have a viable product or service? Do they have a good management team? You know, have they, uh, you know, who are their competitors, you know, put together the five year, can they put together a five year business plan and, and, uh, and do we think it's viable? So, you know, you morph into the kind of things that a more typical venture capital organization would morph into, but we'd also look at their, if you like, their social business plan. Which is which population are they trying to hire? What 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 skills do they need to become, you, you know, arguably job ready and, and able to go out and work in the private sector? How are they going to accomplish that in the context of the business, et cetera? So, so, um, and, and again, without getting into too many details, because this takes a while to tell, but all of these phases uh, were really, really interesting. So this was our social enterprise phase. Just west to east, to give an idea of the types of things we did, um, an organization called Atira Property Management, which uh, is owned by a charity that helps women who are victims of violence uh, uh, called the Atira Women's Resource Center. It owns a hundred percent of Atira property management. Atira property management today does the property management for dozens of condominium properties in BC, but also 15 of BC housings, single accommodation residences. Um, it's run by licensed commercial property managers, but but the admin jobs go to the women as they're affiliated with the charity as their first step back into the mainstream. The on-site security maintenance jobs, which are often part-time, go to men who are uh, living in single accommodation residences of BC Housing who, who are often recovering from some form of chemical dependency. It, uh, it today is uh, profitable, employs more than 200 people. You know, It's a great example of, of what can happen. We and the way we worked, we we were on the board. Uh, we provided, for instance, uh, uh, two loans. One loan was done to acquire a book of business, so we helped you know negotiate the acquisition of uh, a portfolio of you know property management businesses. So it's things you don't normally think of a charity doing or right. you know, charity acquiring a. Um, and another loan for growth capital, both those loans got, uh, got repaid in full. Um, so it's a kind of, you know, it's a great example of uh, what social enterprise can do and be and, and up uh, and work. And without describing all of these, because it takes time and you can delve into something more if you'd like, but West to East, a renovation company in Winnipeg that employed urban aboriginals from the inner city neighborhoods in Winnipeg, bicycle courier company here in Toronto that hired directly from youth shelters that did uh, all the bicycle courier work for all the courier business for, for instance, RBC and for the largest law firms. And uh, what's now 18 thrift stores in Montreal owned by a charity that uh, hires directly off the social assistance roles, which last year had more than 30 million in revenue and more than 5 million in profits. And again, just referring to the monitor where you know we could go in take a monitor case team into something like that look at the whole value chain from the collection of clothes to you know the, the inventorying to the merchandising the pricing the, the clearance how you did all those things in a way that you know no charity or social enterprise is used to monitor using all their results you learn Oh, we got to win at collections. That's the whole key to this business. From doing it and then plan and implement a strategy around that. So we would go in. We would uh, you know see where we thought we could add value. We take uh, um, positions on the board. We provide funding and and do it. And that was our our uh, you know first six or seven years.
0: Where did you? This is like 2001 to two, two, early 2000s.
1: Yeah. 2000 to 2008 or
0: 2000. Yeah. Where, where were you sourcing pipeline for social yeah, enterprises yeah, yeah. in 2001?
1: <laughs> well, here's, here's how we started, which was, uh, killed us, but was actually a, a brilliant way to do it. Um, we said, okay, how do we get deals? How do we get deal flow? Like, you know? Um, uh, and we said, well, let's hold a national social enterprise business plan competition. Uh, and let's say that we'll award a $15,000 cash prize to the winner, but the real prize is that this isn't an academic exercise. If we like it, we'll fund it, and, and, uh, we said, you know, just what we said earlier, okay, we want to see your financial business plan, but we want to see your social business plan. Who are you going to employ? You know, where are you trying to get them to? You know, how are you going to get them there? How are you going to make the business still work financially in doing that? And we, we felt like we didn't have, we didn't talk about this, but we thought, oh, we don't really have integrity here. because we really, we don't have the resources to do something, you know, out of province or even that much out of Toronto. But, but we thought, let's hold national because then it'll look like, you know, we'll get free publicity, you know, we can, which we ended up getting. You know a whole bunch because this was so novel that um you know we had all kinds of both you know newspaper and radio uh coverage about this business plan got interviewed on you know across the country on this unique business plan and i'm feeling a bit badly because i thought oh you know i'm going to choose from something from toronto because we don't have that many resources and well, it turns out we did have integrity, much to my surprise, because the winner ended up being uh, the, the uh, renovation company we did in Winnipeg. And, mm-hmm. and it was four not-for-profit housing agencies that came together and said, put together a business plan around saying, you know, we could do a lot more for the people uh, we're trying to help if as non-profit housing agencies, we were also uh, trying to address their employment needs and not just their housing needs. And here we are as these not-for-profit housing agencies. We've acquired a bunch of properties in the inner cities neighborhoods of Winnipeg for next to nothing. And the reason we've acquired them for next to nothing is they're so run down. They need a huge amount of renovation work just to be brought up to code. And traditionally we've gone out to the private sector to do that renovation work, but the private sector hasn't been very reliable because A, we the not-for-profit housing agencies put every single, you know, uh, Job through a competitive bidding process, and we always take the lowest bidder no matter what. So there isn't much profit in it to begin with. And then whoever does get the business inevitably gets surprised. It's like the job sites get vandalized. So they don't want to bid in our work anymore. And so we go through this cycle. And their sort of eureka moment for this social enterprise idea is why don't we start up a new kind of renovation company? A renovation company that actually employs people from the inner city neighborhoods, teaches them those long term trade skills. Now they're going to be working in. Uh, you know, if not literally metaphorically on their neighbor's house, they're going to be, you know, and so they put together that business plan and here's this steady flow of business already guaranteed. What a, uh, so they won our business plan competition, but through that we, we got more than a hundred, you know, uh, submissions, which of course brought us to our knees in terms of, but started that deal flow. You had to read
0: them all, (laughs) all their business plans.
1: And then we had lots of deal flow from from then on just because of that. So it turned out to be a good idea. And surprisingly, you know, we ended up, I was thinking, oh, you know, we're talking about this national business plan and I have a bias to select something local so that it's going to be hard for us to add as much value. Uh, But then we actually... You know, we could see, holy smokes, we're getting some really interesting stuff across the country. We better make this national. We better figure out how to, you know, do these kinds of things and and who can we partner. And and again, in Winnipeg, we partnered with this organization, Community Ownership Solutions. In Atira, we partnered with uh, Van City in terms of uh, both of us provide the capital and that kind of thing. So we, we found a way to actually go national by figuring out. Who were the right organizations in those local markets that we could partner with and, and work with and it turned out to be you know fantastic
0: Wow that's uh, that's so I mean if it flash forward you know 18 it's just 17 18 years later and this is still the idea of holding these challenges and for funding for social enterprises still being you know sort of flaunted as innovative <laughs> um, yeah. That's really ahead of, ahead of, ahead of the time. That's real cool. Um, so a couple, one, one quick question I want to, how would you, cause we we're talking about social enterprises and this is an area where y- you look at the diff- world and poll people and you'll get different, very different definitions of social enterprise for you. What distinguishes a social enterprise from a traditional for-profit? Well, for us,
1: uh, again, and this is a definitional minefield. So, so you're, you're right. And, and, uh, but for us, we were looking at kind of what we called employment-based social enterprises. We were looking at ones where, uh, uh, you know, and, and our first lens was at least 50% of the employees you know, had to be. So, so I think there are very distinct types of social enterprise. We had a narrow definition ourselves in terms of what we were looking at. I think, without getting into this definitional minefield too much. You know, there's there's this notion of social purpose businesses, which uh, are normally for-profit ones. So sometimes people, like that when they're using social enterprise, say anything that's with profit and purpose but is non-profit, which is social enterprise. If it is for-profit, it's a social purpose business. But those are not generally accepted. They're not. So, so again, to your point, whenever I'm talking about it, I'm glad when someone says, "Well, what were you talking about?" Well, we were talking about employment-based, and our criteria was at least 50% come from. That's what our narrow definition of a social enterprise was for our
0: purposes. So, from there, you and you. This is about a five-year period where you're doing the social enterprise work. As I've heard you describe it, you realize, "Okay, so this is great. We've done this great work, but look." look at the scale we're talking about here is, is creating a few hundred jobs. We, you're interested, if you're going to do it, I, I've had this mindset myself, I'm going to do it. I want it to be the maximum impact I can possibly make. So how do we make more impact? And that led to your second phase. Is that yeah.
1: right? We, to your point, we stepped back, said, where are we after six or seven years? We said, well, we proved, one of the things we wanted to prove, which is you can make these double bottom line companies work. They can work both financially, they can be uh, sustainable and, and profitable. And they can work socially. They can transform lives. But we said, to your point, on the other hand, it's taking us six or seven years to help provide six or 700
0: jobs. Sorry to interrupt. Is, is that a conscious, like, did you have in the in the outset, like, hey, after five, six years, we're going to stop and do this? Is no. it just a gut thing? And you realize at a certain point, we got to stop now and think about this?
1: Yeah. I think one of the again, if I'm proud of anything in social capital partners, it's we always step back on a regular basis and say, are we having the impact we want to have? We want to do something that actually changes the landscape. And and even though, and this is, you know, I also say, that, you know, linked to that being proud of, I mean, we, we've had plenty of failures on the, on the way, but we've been willing to move away from our successes as willing as, to move away from our failures if we don't think we're having the impact we want So so we had become sort of the go-to social enterprise organization This was just as social enterprise was starting to come into and start to be cool You know, we we could have just carved out that space um, but we We stepped back and said, you know, we got into this to change the landscape and uh, You know, frankly, all we are is an interesting magazine article. You know, people like to write about what we're doing. They like to, and I don't mean this as pejoratively as it says, but they like to pat us on the head and tell us to keep up the good work. But at the end of the day, they're reading about this social enterprise stuff we're doing on a Saturday, and they're going to work on Monday, doing things exactly the same way as they were doing them before. This is seen as an anomaly, as something outside the system that's really, really interesting, but but not relevant. And we said... We got into this to change the landscape and make this more the way we as a society think about generating our economic returns. And frankly, we're an interesting magazine article. So we stepped back and said, so how do we change the landscape? What do we have to do? We said, if we're ever going to change the landscape, we've got to do two things. We said, one, we've got to engage the private sector. We said, if you like, up until then, we've been looking for deal flow in the nonprofit sector. Easier to look there. Everybody got the social mission. Everybody uh, loved the idea of a sustainable business, and we looked hard enough. We could find great things to do. We could not be prouder than to be associated with those social enterprises and, you know, the people in them. We admire, we love, we, uh, and, and will always uh, believe the importance of, of so- social enterprise. Um, but we said we don't engage the private sector. This remains an anomaly. And the second thing we said we had to do is we had to make this more cookie cutter because startups are hard. Startups are even harder with this model and we can only do one transaction a year because we have to drop everything we're doing to say, how do we get this business to work? Um, and it's not easily scalable. So with that, we said private sector cookie cutter. What about franchising, Where we don't have to figure out the business model. What if we go to establish successful franchise operations with this value proposition, which was we said we'll provide startup capital via loan, a subordinate loan to a business person who wants to buy one of your locations, make it subordinate. Their bank debt will do it at attractive rates. But to get our money, they got to agree to implement a community hiring program. They got to agree that a fixed number of their employees will be hired through these community service agencies we work with. But we knew that would get the antenna of business owners up. Like, wait a second. Were you going to make me hire? What? Uh, you know, I don't know that I like this idea at all. Uh, I'm a little uh, suspicious i mean, this, you know, suspicious. So, so we said. But our promise back to you, the business owner, is we'll get you a competitive pool of candidates to choose from. We said we don't deliver on that promise. You don't have to deliver on your promise to hire the fixed number. And we said you're the sole judge. You only have to do this once. And any time after that, you can opt out and cancel the social covenant of this loan agreement with no penalty to you whatsoever. So we decided, let's guarantee our product. We joked now, we had no idea if we could do it or not, but we thought, let's make it look like we know what we're doing. <laughs> and we and, and at the end of the day, we said to ourselves, we have to de-risk this if we're gonna get the private sector to do it. So let's just de-risk it and see what happens. So long story short, we did 80, of those, uh, loans to different franchises, mostly in the car service area. We, we had, and again, this is where, interesting enough, in our journey with Monitor, we sat down with Monitor and said, okay, help us think through what 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 is the criteria of the franchises we're uh, going to look at and who are the best ones to go to? And we had a series of criteria, like they had to be financially successful. We didn't, A, we wanted our loans to be repaid and B, we wanted to prove that this was a success you know, type thing. So. And, and C, we didn't want to figure out the business model. So we wanted them to be financially successful. Uh, two, we wanted them they had to be labor intensive rather than capital intensive because we didn't see ourselves in the money lending business. We saw ourselves in the job provision business. So we had this notion of we're not going to do it if we have to lend more than $15,000 per job created. Um, we didn't want to lend 200000 and get two jobs you know, type thing. So, so they had to be labor intensive and then they had to provide a good career path. So if someone was ready to turn their lives around, they had to be, you know, effectively guaranteed a good socioeconomic outcome. You know, if they, so we stayed away, for instance, from fast food or whatever that might have, you know, more dead end jobs. Um, and the nice thing about the car service model is you don't need that many skills to change oil. Although, as I always joke, it eliminates meat. But you can work your way to being a licensed mechanic. So it's got that kind of career path for it. So long story short, we did about 80 of them, mostly in the car service. Our biggest ones were Active Green and Ross and Mr. Lube. And we learned two things from that uh, journey. We learned a lot more than two, but they get us to phase three. And uh, the two things we learned is employers would implement a community hiring program if someone made it easy for them. And two, it's not easy for them. And it's not easy for them um, uh, because our employment training social assistance system writ large has never understood that we've got to make the employer as important a customer in the system as the person we're trying to find an employment opportunity for. The system has missed the point that if this isn't an easy and effective channel for employers to recruit people from, it actually doesn't matter what kind of training or that kind of thing you can provide on the supply side, you, have, you will have a dysfunctional suboptimal system, which, take my word for it, our employment training system is. And we were playing a band-aid in the system. We were playing the interface between the community service organizations with the source of supply, and the employers with the job. And guess what we learned from that? Guess how many of the 80 that we said could opt out at any time actually opted out? Zero. And it's not because we always found them the perfect candidate. It's because when we didn't, we said, we've got to fix it. It's not your job to employ someone who can't do the job out of some sense of community obligation. It was our job to get you the right candidate in the first place. So we'll respond as fast or faster than any other recruitment channel you deal with. Well, guess what? If you do that, if you treat the employer as a customer and say, this is my problem, not yours, and I'm going to respond at the pace that you would expect a supplier to respond at, they roll with the punches. Not one of them, not one of them opted out, every single one of them. uh, And, and in fact, Active Green and Ross said to us, okay, we want to use your community hiring program in our company-owned stores. We don't need your financing. I we said, oh, wait a second. We thought we needed the financing, sort of the carrot stick to make this whole thing happen. We offer the carrot of attractive financing. we got the stick of we call your loan if you don't do this. He said, no, you found us access to a labor pool we never would have had access to. They're working out the right thing to do for the community. Why wouldn't we do it? I thought, yeah, why wouldn't you do it? <laughs> right. Why wouldn't everyone do this if someone <laughs> made it easy for them? And that's what made us switch to say, well, we keep playing the band-aid in the system. We can do four or 500 of these. You know, it was working in the sense of we could now do three or four deals a month as opposed to one a year because we didn't have to figure out what to charge for an oil change or what a brake job should cost, all those things that were so hard in the social enterprise phase. But we said instead of playing a band aid in the system, we should try and fix the system <laughs> because, as a system, as taxpayers, we spend billions of dollars on employment training and social assistance. Employers aren't involved in the design. Of that training, that training isn't linked to our future workforce development shortages, and none of the funding in the system is tied to successful employment outcomes. Which is, we try and help the government government a successful employment outcome is what both sides of the equation want on this. You know, the supply side, the people we're trying to find jobs for, want to find jobs they can stay at and progress at, which is our definition of a successful employment outcome. That's what the demand side wants. Employers want to hire people who will stay, and progress. We think the system should be measured, managed, and funded on delivering successful employment outcomes. We don't even look at that now. Um, so we then so phase three was about moving up the systems level. How do we actually get what we call a demand-led training system? How do we actually get the government to actually redesign our whole? employment training system from the demand side backwards rather than the supply side forwards. And we thought the whole value chain from the intake to the assessment to the pre-employment training to the placement to the post-employment support provided the people who were trying to find jobs for should be looked at through the lens of generating successful employment outcomes and employers should be involved in the design of that. We've got billions of dollars, we don't need more, but are we getting the assessment right? right? Should there be more in the pre-employment training? Well, employers, this is the post-employment support. It's, let's track employment outcomes hiring through this channel versus the employment outcomes you're getting hiring through other channels. And you tell us where to spend the money. That's the system we were envisioning that, that we could say, boy, that's how we can have the most impact. We, we yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a you know better magazine article when we've got 500 of these loans, but it's still in the magazine article. We can change the system. You know, now we're having impact. So that's what led to phase three. and and. Uh,
0: so how long is phase two? When does that, roughly, I know that's probably not hard.
1: Yeah, and that's, you know, and hopefully no one will go look up our website <laughs> and find that these numbers are completely wrong. Right, right. I'd say, and, and, of course, they, it's not like there isn't a tail to each of these phases. Yeah. You move into the new ones, and as you you morph into something different.
0: Like mid 2000s to yeah so probably 2007 to
1: 2012 or something like that something like that okay
0: so now you're at 2012 ish and you're thinking more and more about we we need to attack you know not attack but change the system rather than the than the individual companies and so how do you because these are like what I'm not also realized that these are quite fundamentally just very different things you're working on. I mean, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. you've got to be highly flexible. <laughs> yeah,
1: and, and you think, you know, did you get an early start on the legalization of marijuana to be <laughs> smoking something to think you can do this, you know? I mean, it right. will be to change a system. Right. Uh, and, you know, that's where, again, uh, you know, sometimes you step back and say, okay, we've got to at the systems level, but then we say, who are we to work at the system level? And our eureka moment in this phase was, oh, we don't have to figure it out. We've got to say, who should be doing this, and how do we get them to do it? So we said, we can go to government, and we can show them our work in the field and say, government, we gave 80, 80 different employers the opportunity to opt out, but none of them did. Uh, how does that compare with the results of your uh, system? You know, How are you doing? In that regard. Um, so we had pretty compelling evidence to say, and you know what the secret is? You treat them as a customer. It's not that, it's not that this isn't a brilliant insight of any kind. You know, it's it's a pretty fundamental one. But you've got to now redesign the system. That's the secret to it. So, so we said to ourselves, okay, who do governments turn to if they want to think about a system redesign? Well, they turn to the large system integrators, the Deloitte's, the KPMGs, the Accenture's, uh, the IBMs. So we thought. Okay, let's go to Deloitte um, and we had connections there we knocked on their door we we had a meeting in their boardroom we had their chair their vice chair their head of uh, their global head of government practice their chief innovation officer and the head of their CSO. And and our pitch was you got to make a five-year pro bono commitment to us here's the social impact this idea could have here's the taxpayer savings here's why this is up your alley we said, you won't find a better CSR, corporate social responsibility opportunity. And we said, no false modesty here. You won't find a better nonprofit profit partner than us. But then we said, but what you want to do is think about this as a CSR, corporate social responsibility opportunity. We don't want to work with you. We only want to work with you see this as a business opportunity. Because we want you to be the experts in demand-led systems change, not us. We want this out on your brand, not our brand. <laughs> it's going to have way more impact with the actors in the system. And here's how we get started. Let's do a white paper on what a demand-led system would look like and what's wrong with the current system and what the taxpayer savings would be and, you, you know, that kind. So, from that meeting, I mean, all these things sound wonderful and sound like they, you know, all work and things are much more complicated than I'm making them. But Deloitte the said, yes, we did the white paper. As I always joke, if anyone out there needs to cure their insomnia, just go to our website, read the white paper, you'll sleep like a baby in no time. <laughs> um, but it was all about you know, this was our idea of how do we and then the white paper got marketed to various uh, governments. We went on some joint calls, but we were also trying to separate ourselves from the whites because we wanted them to form a business practice area and that. We still wanted to have the notion that we go to governments and you know can talk them where we're not looking for a revenue stream ourselves you know one of the things we think we can bring at a systems change level that nobody else can is we talk to governments with say, uh, actually we don't want you to pay us for our services um, we'll provide our services for free and it's not because we're nice people it's because we want to work just on things that will have the ability to make a dramatic impact and and takes huge institutional courage to actually upend an entrenched system. And we think if you're not paying us, then we can walk away at any time and go where we, so we had a number of initiatives uh, in Nova Scotia, in Manitoba, in Ontario, which are long stories. I will be in therapy for years um, that, that were, you know, aimed at doing these things there. It's just, it is. Uh, I mean, it's a longer conversation and a longer story on on how you can be successful at system change. We have not cracked this code. It's it's when you take something that takes, you know, is going to take a, you know, a 10-year time frame to really change, and isn't going to be a vote winner, you know, because it's too complicated an issue. It's hard to find. You know, and there's a whole bunch of risk invested interests who are going to fight it. Hard to find a you know a government that wants to really do anything other than pilots to make it look like they're innovative, but but you know really doesn't have the institutional courage to make the depth of change that needs to be made. And that, in essence, is is our, our systems journey where where we're we're moving away. The one thing I would add to that, if, if, or, or if you want me to stop because I've been going on too long. No,
0: now, no, please.
1: I think we also tried to think about scaling sort of our interesting financial uh, tools that way too, because we became known and people thought it was innovative that we made these loans and then we tied the interest rates to um, uh, a social outcome. So the way our loans work with those business owners is each community hire they made, we reduced their interest rate. And if they, you know, ended up having to let go any of our community hires, we'd increase their interest rates. So, I mean, everyone, every loan that anyone else has seen is obviously linked to Prime or something. Mm -hmm. Here was this loan linked to a social platform. And that was one of the things that, you know, we got known for. But but again, we we think social capital partners doing this interesting magazine article. How do we think about? you know, getting something like this more in the mainstream. And we had two initiatives in our phase three around that, which which are longer stories. But one was RBC announced, uh, you know, the start of a corporate impact fund, a $10 million corporate impact fund. As I joke, you know, $10 million isn't even a rounding error at RBC. I don't think their internal auditors can find it. But but, but we thought, what well, would be a way more interesting story if our largest bank had a loan product that was conditional on the implementation of a community iron program that we built. Way more interesting, our largest bank had a loan product that tied the interest rate to a social outcome as opposed to a financial outcome. So let's get them in that fund to invest in our loan portfolio, and then let's try and use it as a Trojan horse. How do we infiltrate? How do we get it so that five or ten years from now, it will be easy for you or me or any of us uh, if we phone up our investment advisor at RBC or TD or wherever to invest in an affordable housing fund? or a community bond fund, or a microfinance fund, as easy it is today to invest in a conventional mutual fund. So we did get them to invest in us. We tried to use it as a Trojan horse. I would argue that it has been under their philanthropy area, mm. not linked. So it has been siloed. It hasn't been linked to their strategy, et cetera. And that showed itself true in the second thing that we tried to do, which I think Maybe the best work we've done in our history and maybe our biggest failure. So it's funny how that goes. The government of Ontario came to us, I think, probably in 2015, saying we are going to do an RFP, a request for proposals for a social impact bond. They, like other governments, have fallen, I would argue, disproportionately in love with the social impact bond as a financial tool. Um, and they said. Uh, you know, we think community hiring would lend itself to a social impact bond construct. We know you know something about, you know, social finance and putting these things together. Uh, we can't, and we want you to put in a proposal, and we can't promise you anything, but nudge, nudge, wink, wink, we're going to look favorable on both from you. And we said, well, we're not going to. Uh, here's why. But we said, we got a different idea for you. Uh, we've made all these loans to these business owners, and then we reduced their interest rates. Uh, conditional on them, uh, I, I mean, uh, You know, with each community hire they make, and we raise their interest rates, you know, if they don't. But we said, instead of us reducing interest rates and paying for it, why don't you, the government, do that? And we said, instead of us providing the capital, because our capital is pretty limited, why don't we leverage up all the capital providing sources already out there, banks and credit unions? So why don't you offer any of their customers who implement a community hiring program an interest rate reduction on their loans? And why don't you, why don't we structure it in a way that it's self-financing for you, unlike social impact bonds? So why don't we say, that, where, where you don't have to go to private investors, why don't we say that the only people who qualify for the community hiring program, this community hiring program, are people on some form of government assistance right now. They're on your payroll, government. And why don't we say you only, you only pay the interest rate reduction once they've been employed at least six months? So you know whatever interest rate reduction you pay is a fraction of the savings you've already generated. You don't pay out a dollar till you've saved two. (laughs) So you've got no risk in something like that. Why don't you do a feasibility study in that? And we didn't say this, but we thought, because we know you don't do anything without a feasibility study. (laughs) To our surprise, they said, that does sound like a good idea. Um, Ironically, Deloitte's did the feasibility study, um, so they actually got paid on something they did with us,
0: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
1: um, but, um, and their feasibility study said, come on, we think there's 140 million in savings in this uh, for you. We think you should, uh, we think you should do to set up a pilot. Again, a long story, a painful story. Cause it, was I say it's the best work we've done, we actually got three banks. We got TD, Scotia, CIBC. Interesting enough, not RBC, because we went through, I would argue, sort of the area that didn't have as much influence on sort of wealth-managed product development, small business lending. Whereas we could go to the head of small business lending at Scotia, and they'd see the value proposition this. And the way it worked, because we, were, we said to the government, let us design this with participating banks and credit, and four credit unions. So we had four credit unions participate. We said, let us design this with banks and credit unions. We have to make it easy for them, but we promise to get you that two-to-one payout, and you're not going to fund it unless we do. So the way it worked was uh, on uh, uh, if, if you dealt with your bank, you're a customer of the bank via an operating line of credit, if you need working capital, you got six months interest free on that line of credit for every community hire, or if you dealt with your bank via term loan, you you borrowed for five years to you got, one uh, percent off uh, the cost of that term loan for the entire term of that loan up to a maximum principal of two hundred thousand, so that's what governed the two to one pan you know where, where it was capped at two hundred thousand terms loan, so not a financial interest, say to a company borrowing twenty million dollars, but to a small business borrowing up to five hundred thousand or a million, a significant uh, you know reduction in in their cost um, and it applied on new and existing loans. So, and, and all the bank had to do when we sort of said, okay, we have to set this up so it's easy for the bank and there's a compelling value proposition for them. They only had to make one phone call. So they could literally, a bank could pick up the phone to someone who they hadn't seen in four years, who's four years into a five-year term loan, and say, hey, customer, uh, I can get you a significant reduction in your uh, interest rate cost, back Uh, To year one and there's no obligation to you uh, and and it's going to provide you some recruiting help would you like to find out more that's all the bank had to do they didn't have to track whether or not someone was actually hired or whether they stayed for six months then we would pick up the phone to that business owner slash employer slash borrower and say "Uh, hey uh, mr. or miss employer um, uh, next time you're recruiting uh, we'll send you some candidates. we say, if you don't like them, don't hire them. Only hire them if you like them, and, and uh, if they stay six months, you're going to get a check in the mail for the equivalent of this. Oh. So the business owner is saying, okay, let me understand this. Next time I'm recruiting, you're going to send me candidates. Yep. You're not going to charge me for that. Nope. If I don't like them, I don't hire them. No. Nope. Only hire them if I like them. Yeah. <laughs> Someone sends me a check in the mail? <laughs> Okay. So we set it up. It's a great deal for the employer. It's a great deal for the bank. It's a great deal for the government because now it's a channel that's never been used before to do community hiring. And it's self-financing, obviously a great deal for people. And we really thought, why we thought this is the best work we've done. This This is where we think the evolution of how you blend this hybrid world together, where you take already scaled channels, you layer on a social twist, That works for everyone. It's not doing this out of CSR. It's doing it out of their interest. If you're creative, you can do it. So I think, you know, I think this was sort of our best word.
0: It's a long,
1: long story, painful, (laughs) but we uh, we pulled the plug on it um, because after we all we learned, which we could have predicted in advance, was it's the systems issue that until the system changes, because we got 180 employers to sign up before we stop. Stop it. But we could only get an average of one and a half candidates on a non-timely basis for, uh, you know, the employers, you know, that, and so we couldn't get the system to respond at the speed and the quality that the employers needed. And just to prove our point, we actually put a couple of the jobs on Indeed because that's where small businesses go to actually recruit people. And we couldn't ask for privacy reasons, whether any of the, applicants were on any form of government assistance or faced employment barriers, but we, we thought maybe we can see if people will self-identify on a volunteer basis. We got 900 applications that brought us to our knees, but we got 75 to voluntarily self-identify. So back up to the systems level, we're getting one and a half candidates on a non-timely basis from the system as it's currently, you know, structured. We get 75 because the people we're trying to help are going to channels where they think they can get a job and then they're not getting help overcoming the employment barriers that they have. Which, so you see, from a systems level, oh, this is so maddening and mm-hmm. frustrating, and and it drove me mad that you know what what I think was perhaps one of the best things we've ever done. This this construct of this program called Rate Drop Rebate, where we have got the banks, the credit unions, the borrowers, the government, the you know put together this really innovative thing that I think. Should have been a template for the way we should be thinking about these things as a society, the kind of creative things we could be doing in healthcare or education, where you say, "Where are scale channels? What's the social twist we can put on it? What, how can we make it work for everyone in new, innovative ways?" You know, instead, sort of the, it gets written off as a failure when it's the system. That's, so that's why I'm in therapy for years now. That's, <laughs> that's why we're moving on to phase four. You know, the way we the system level that has defeated us.
0: So is that, is that, I mean, is that essentially where you're at, that the system's just too difficult to change and you're.
1: Well, and I say that, and that's to say there's always tails to any of the things we never, the, the, the good news is demand led is much more on the lingo. Now there's, I mean, we're asked to sit on all kinds of, you know, government initiatives around how to think through these things. Um, We've decided to provide one resource to what we think are the best demand-led initiatives uh, out there, of which there are a number that we think have the possibility, but we're not trying to be the central catalyst here. We're trying to find ways to help those with the knowledge we've gained through this and, and uh, y- you know our expertise in this area from the work we've done is seen as uh, very valuable. And then a couple of the new ideas we're working on linked to it as well. But, but as for us making, putting all our eggs in this demand led employment training system systems change basket, uh, that has come to an end.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can appreciate that. Uh, boy. Um, yeah, I could feel, I can feel the <laughs> the frustration. Um, well, and, it's, and it's cause you care, right? You care about this stuff so much. You Your
1: care, and, and, and people, you know we're that's the thing we're okay with failure in the sense of we you know we might have been talking about this on, on just before we went live on this but but one of the things that makes social capital partners unique is we're a nonprofit with independent funding that doesn't care about failure so we think we should be trying things that are inherently really really difficult to do um, but if successful could have a huge impact because we don't think many other organizations are able to think that way because they've got to meet payroll. They've got to meet, you know, the expectations of the funders that have set them up, you, you know, and, and so we're pretty unique when we go, you know, to a, say a systems change table and say, well, we have no best interest here. We don't want to be a service provider. We don't want to be a consultant. We don't want to be paid. We're only interested in impact and big systems change and sharing our knowledge and that kind of thing so we'll we'll still try and find ways to use that unique positioning to to help drive things forward but 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 what a lesson i mean we have a whole uh you know we're, we're heavily scarred in terms of you know what we've learned in this sort of systems change journey i think uh you know but 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 we have no regrets absolutely would make that run again and, and uh, you know, uh, I hope that something like this rate drop rebate, you know, just that thinking there that, that we'll be able to see that in other places or others will take that, you know, thinking and build on it where they, you know, have got uh, maybe more, uh, you know, energy for a new run than, than we might have on something like that now. Because you have to, you have to find your, you have to lick your wounds sometimes and, and recover.
0: What's interesting to me about, that, that strikes me about that is this is a, a thing, I think this is a problem that affects the for profit world as equally as, which is, you know, Elon Musk is, I think, dealing with this right now. Is after yeah. going public, yeah. you've got shareholders who yeah. have different ideas yeah. about what they want to see yeah. and when they want to see it. And this sort of short term quarterly focus yeah. on profits um, means that you can't, you don't have the flexibility to do the things you could yeah. when you're private. So this is a human nature.
1: Totally.
0: Um, Thing rather than a, a nonprofit or a, a for-profit. And, and it, I think it just serves to highlight how these two worlds aren't that different.
1: Yeah. No, it's, it, and, and how few organizations have this ability to tackle stuff that's really tough to tackle in a long-term time frame in, in a way that, and I think Elon Musk is a great example. Because he, he is he can't do what probably he would like to be able to do um, in terms of what motivates him personally. So so I think we're really lucky, uh, you, you know, and that's the way I draw solace from you know even uh, sort of you know these failures we have. We we don't we never look at our successes as successes, and we never look at our failures as failures. It's it's a journey to have as much impact as we possibly can and figure out where those levers are and how we can contribute to them and we just keep moving to where we think we can find the biggest levers in the ways that we can, can we're uniquely able to contribute the most and 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 that's our journey it isn't it isn't to pause and say oh we succeeded that and we failed that it's it's this you know this this journey that i i often liken it you know the analogy i try and use is like a maze and in a maze you're trying to get to the middle you have to hit what a whole bunch of what seem like dead ends to get there but 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 they're not dead ends you can't i mean it's it's a gazillion to one that you can go from the start to the middle without hitting dead ends you just don't want to keep hitting the same dead ends. <laughs> but but it's you know i that's the journey I think we're on. And and whether we hit a wall or we move more to the middle and don't hit a wall, you know, because we've been succeeding, we don't see. It's, you know, back to this thing of social enterprise. We were a success, but we don't think of it that way because we weren't anywhere near the middle. And the middle is where you have the deepest and most impact in terms of making this world a better place. And, and so that was just we... You know, we're working our way to the middle. We're still a long way from it and, and had to change. We didn't want to stop where we were just because we hadn't run into a, you know, a wall right in our first, you know, sort of three years of our journey type of thing. And not, I mean, we didn't run into walls, but, but, but you know, that's, is, that's is, just the analogy I use.
0: Is there some part of you that that enjoys the failure because you know that it's just bringing you a step closer? Or is it always like, Oh, this is awful when it happens. And only retrospectively can you appreciate it in the moment. Do you ever sort of like, Oh, right. Well, we just learned something really great. I try and do that.
1: Uh, (laughs) You know, and I, I, I can articulate it that way, but I'd be a liar. If I said, uh, these don't take something out of you. When you, when you put your heart and soul into something, in the case of this rate drop rebate, where you think it's the best work you've ever done, you know, um, just in terms of, you know, the potential impact, the the creativity. I think in terms of finding a construct that worked for everyone, where they weren't doing it out of CSR reasons, and and you know, breaking down the barriers to get the government to do something like that, to get the private sector to do something like that, you know, uh, you know, in a way that nobody would have ever what you know, banks and credit unions are effectively selling community hiring to. <laughs> It's uh, But I thought it was a template for we've got to find these new creative ways of creating these multi-stakeholder engagements in ways that it isn't the typical value proposition of nonprofits. I think you should help me for profits because you've got lots of money and you've got lots of resources and it will be a good philanthropic thing to do. So why don't you give us some resources to build this house over there or, you know, this was something very, very, very different. And so I'd be a liar if I said it. <laughs> Didn't take something out of me and and us as an organization in terms of uh, you know when you put your heart and soul into anything and it but but I still uh, absolutely it's not just rationalization when I say it's uh, you know we expect <laughs> these kind of failures, failures. from you and then we're we're comfortable with them we are yeah still it's still hard.
0: <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. So let's talk um, br- very briefly, because where I know we're, we're um, don't want to take too much of your day here, but um, you've got some current work that you guys are f- focused on. Um, I've, I've you know, noted sort of four things that your website talks about. Um, can you maybe talk about um, you can sort of highlight some, but maybe talk about one of those things that you're maybe most excited about or that you most think the listeners here might want to know about.
1: Yeah, and see if I can talk about any of them fast. Um,
0: I know that's a taller because <laughs> they're complicated. for me
1: too, and it is complicated, and I'm, I'm never good at it. Um, just in terms of what are tails is, uh, you, you know, one of the great things that happened to social capital partners in the last year and a half is John Shell has joined. John is, in some ways, <laughs> like me when I started. He's he's a little bit younger than I was, early 40s, but had a big win in the private sector wants to do something very different with his life, uh, said, you know, real fortune, he happened to be in the right place at the right time. So he's actually put money in, joined as a partner, and, and uh, you know, is really going to be driving force. But one of the things he said is, you know, as we're talking about our demand led system change, all that, uh, and what we always describe meaningful employment as a full-time job with benefits, uh, you know, one of the things John sort of points out is, using the Canadian hockey analogy, well maybe we should be like Wayne Gretzky, instead of going to where the puck is, go where the puck's going, and whether we like it or not, this world is moving to gig economy, contract work, freelance, um, you know, and every consulting company worth its, you know, um, worth its salt uh, is has got a white paper out on the future of work. and And but it all comes from the same lens. Artificial intelligence is coming, these jobs are gonna disappear, these are the new jobs, we gotta get ready for that. But nobody's coming from the lens of what would it take for Canada to be the best place in the world to be a gig economy worker? What are the enabling conditions uh, for that? Uh, so we thought, oh yeah, you know, that's, I mean, and, and maybe, and so we just started doing a bit of research thinking about that lens. Uh, it seems to have, Taken off from speaking at a couple of conferences on it, we are now partnering with, uh, you know, the Royal I think it's the Royal Arts Society. What, what is it in, in the UK and Charlie Ledbetter and and Deloitte um, to actually look at that lens, holding a uh, competition, a global competition on what we think are the multiple dimensions. We, for instance, have identified 14 different conditions that you would have to be best at to actually create that. This particular competition highlights sort of nine, and they're a little bit different than the fourteen we've identified. But but a global competition on what are the best practice areas, best organizations doing that, and then it'll be how might you bring that to Canada? It's not what we want to do. We don't want to be this think tank, but we also go where we get traction. And this is this lens has <laughs> taken off. We're now seemingly experts in this, which we joke, boy oh boy, you know, you know. but. <laughs> But that's one, and it's, you know, there's, I mean, interesting things coming from that. There's a lot of interest. Uh, another thing that's John's uh, leading on, um, what we call the International Space Station idea, which is sort of linked to that. One of the things we, you know, in this systems work and man-led system change, we think this could all be solved with a big technology platform. <laughs> you know, of, of how do you match employers and jobs and how do you match skills and things like that? Ironically, you know, governments, you know, we spend in Ontario billions of dollars on, you know, this employment training social assistance system. We think a global platform there might be because there's a bunch of stuff out there. You might need a hundred million dollars. Governments would never think of spending a hundred million dollars, even though they spend three billion dollars on a provincial. I mean, if you look always we spend, but, but that's venture capital's job. That's and you say. And you, because we've broken, you governments, because we've broken this down into provinces are responsible for this. You've got a different employment training system in Manitoba and Alberta, and and you're all trying to put in your individual solutions in there, where what we need is you look at sort of a LinkedIn or something that has a global platform to sort of figure out how to match people. You design one for this. We should be... Effectively thinking about this in the International Space Station, where a bunch of countries come together create this, it's not bad. Because we've all got these issues, and we've all broken them down in jurisdictional ones, and a technology platform could solve this if we were creative about it. So again, we put together a little bit, thanks to John, on a white paper on this, and this idea seems to be taking off, in terms of, you know, Governor this <laughs> is interesting with that interest from Sweden and things like that, so we're putting a little effort in that. Again, not something we want to do, we don't want to be this think tank or whatever, but if we can catalyze it and hand it off to the right organization and and this thing where we get traction. Third idea, which we, again, of of ideas we don't want to do long term, but we catalyze, we've noticed in the last five or six years there's been a great, uh, interesting uh, uh, development where probably two dozen of some of the most interesting progressive companies in the world have started up corporate impact funds uh, um, we've only got one in Canada, which is RBC. And we would argue, uh, it wasn't set up the way the most interesting and progressive ones have. And so we decided to do some research, see what's why two macro reasons for that, which are really interesting. One is what I would call a cheap option on the future of business. So these, and these are companies like Patagonia, Danone, the French yogurt company, Comcast, uh, Centrica, which is British gas, JP Morgan, you know, interesting uh, uh, companies that that are well-known names and and kind of progressive uh, companies. And they've been doing it, the ones that we think are the best impact funds, have been doing it for these two macro reasons. One we'd call cheap option, the future of the business. So even... Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, saying you better figure out profit and purpose. You know, back to our original conversation. We think this is coming together? When Larry Fink's talking yeah. about it, you know, <laughs> the world is starting to change. So, so that momentum is around. So, you know, companies are saying, well, if profit and purpose are coming together, we better figure this out. And so why don't we set up a $20, $25 million fund? It might indicate where we should be going. Even if it doesn't, that's not much. You know, this is a cheap option, and we'll probably do some good with this. But if we do get an insight into what our future business looks like, that would be great. And or they're doing it to address three agenda items that almost every company, no matter what business they're in, have in common. One is an innovation agenda. Everybody's talking about, oh, we better innovate or else, you know, our business will be disrupted. Two is talent engagement. Back to that discussion. You know, oh, millennials are, uh, you know, not going to work for us unless we figure out a way to engage them in something more than making profits. and. Third is a social license agenda. Oh, my goodness, all our supply chains are under scrutiny. You know, our customers are starting to vote with their wallets, with their values. Uh, we make a social license mistake, it blows up on social media, and we're hiring PR firms. We better get ahead of this. So these impact funds are addressing that. The two examples we always talk about that just to try and get this done in Canada um, is Danone, this French yogurt company, did a joint venture with uh, – and, and by the way, these companies – these companies are doing, all of them already have long-established CSR philanthropic initiatives. Most of them already have you know, their own M&A venture funds, uh, but they've set this up as something different.
0: Distinct, yeah.
1: And, and distinct. So Danone does this joint venture with the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh uh, to address malnutrition in you know, the kids in Bangladesh. And is now selling more than 100,000 cups of yogurt a day to kids in Bangladesh that provide 35% of their nutrients at a very cheap uh, price that, y- you know, all families, virtually all families uh, can afford. Well, it's not something the M&A department would have done because the way this joint venture agreement works is the best Danone can do financially out of this is get their capital back. It's agreed that all future profits have to be reinvested in this business and there's no exit strategy. Um, and it's not something your CSR department can do. Oh, I think we'll put together a joint venture agreement. We'll figure out how to do microprocessing plants in this country and we'll deliver. No, no, you can't do that. But guess what's happened? Denon's cracked the code on how to do microprocessing plants efficiently in a countries that have poor refrigeration and logistics. They've created this enzyme in the yogurt that allows it to last much longer. They're now selling this yogurt in dozens of developing countries profitably, because, so cheap option on the future of your business, mm-hmm. here's a, um, a, you, know, a, a, a uh, you know, a customer base they thought they could never serve profitably, but you know, now, and guess what it's done for them in innovation, <laughs> you know? Oh, this enzyme development, the chief engineers is the best thing I've ever worked on, talent engagement, people are desperate to work on this, and great for their recruiting, pretty hard to get better on the social license than partnering with a Nobel Prize winning Grameen Bank. So right. I can give you the example of JD Morgan, which is the other one, but from a time standpoint, I want, but we want to act as a catalyst to do this in Canada. Again, not we don't want to be a consultant advisor, but we thought, okay, we can make we can get into CEOs to make this, see if we can act as a catalyst to get this going and, and That's idea three, and idea four, which is the one we probably would like to work on in the long run, which we think leads to social capital partners, which is another one of these long-term sort of big ideas, is, again, I use John's journey as something. You know, here we are, uh, say, what we're really concerned about is inequality, and John says that's what motivated him to come here, and then he sort of deconstructs what he did, and and, uh, John, Made his money by taking businesses that were locally owned, vet clinics, figuring out where the consolidation economics were, building the consolidation platform, and then selling it to private equity. So what did he do? He took something that was arguably owned in the 99%, <laughs> figured out how consolidated, sold it to the 1%, became part of the 1%. And he mm-hmm. said, oh, and I care about inequality. What a, you know, hypocrite. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: So the whole idea is, hey, how do we reverse engineer that process? How do we actually study which locally owned businesses lend themselves to a consolidation platform and how do we build that consolidation platform, but keep the ownership local? What does that model look like? And it's, it's a, it's sort of a little bit like co-ops or whatever, but, but thinking about it in a much different uh, way around different businesses, why, where the leverage is, how you keep that ownership. How do you reverse engineer that private equity and keep it, public hmm. well, equity okay, for lack of a better word. And so we're gonna actually uh, do the work. This is the sort of thing that we would have involved monitoring before where you say, okay, which businesses lend themselves to this? Where are the leverage? How do we and let's actually do that and show it as a model for, for that. And that's kind of the thing that we you know think is more up in the social capital partners where you're taking something that's gonna take eight or ten years, you know, that nobody else is going to be able to sort of work on. We don't really want to be a think tank or you know, trying to advise corporates on how to do this. We'll figure out how to hand that off to the right. But because those are big ideas and we've got traction and more sort of an interesting catalyst, we're going that's
0: a speed. So I love uh, that you're working on that problem. Um, I personally feel like wealth inequality is one of the greatest problems the world faces right now. It's a huge risk um, and it's uh, probably the cause I'm most passionate about. Uh, but boy, uh, you've got your work cut out for you. Yeah. Well, with that said, um, I probably shouldn't steal too much more of your time, Um, but I did want to ask you two final questions. Uh, The first is, uh, do you have any advice for people at an earlier stage of their journey than you? Uh, You know, people who are feeling like they want to do more meaningful work, uh, but just don't know how to get started. Uh, And second, do you have any advice for people who may be happy with their jobs but want to start aligning their investments and their values. Um, you've done both of these uh, successfully, so your feedback would be really valuable.
1: Yeah, I mean both, probably subjects for a longer conversation. But but short advice, I'd plug into if you if you want to just uh, figure things. You know, get get more exposed to this. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm thinking more in a Toronto way, but but yeah. there's ways in in other. To, to find the analogs in, in other places. And there are analogs in Vancouver and Calgary, etc. But I was saying plug into uh, organizations like the center for social innovation or Mars and the events that are going on there and hook into those and find a network of like-minded individuals who are participating in these things. And there, there are these hubs for that. So hook into the hubs and, and you'll see that you'll be able to, You'll see some interesting things, and you'll get more and more uh, involved. And there's volunteer opportunities. There's you know, and and those kinds of things. But but just plug into those networks and those organizations that, that uh, are helping make those connections or running events where those like-minded people come together. Uh, from from starting, you know, at a retail level, there's interesting organizations. CoPower, SolarShare. Um, uh, the Center for Social Innovation is not a community bond. There's there's ways of you know there are some organizations that have sort of cracked the code on how to do you know this and 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 make them RSP eligible, et cetera. We don't have many of those retail uh, uh, opportunities. I go to Mars's SBX, so that's the Social Venture Exchange, which are starting to. Uh, uh, you know, host, uh companies um, that are doing impact, uh, interesting, that have impact investment opportunities. And it's a platform to connect opportunities with potential investors. Some of those are retail opportunities that's getting more populated. So again, ways of finding initial places to put some money and plug into the network that's doing those things. That, that, that would be my quick advice.
0: Well, that's great. I really appreciate it taking time. If people want to find social capital partners, I believe it's socialcapitalpartners.ca. Correct. Great. Well, with that, thanks so much for your time, Bill. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll have you on again to chat in a little more uh, detail on some of these big topics.
1: Great. Nice to chat, dude.
0: Thanks, Bill. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes and uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, Hey Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast.
1: Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast.
0: Yeah, just like that.
1: You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.